0: beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the catechism begins with this incredible statement, this incredible confession of comfort, that I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, body and soul. He he bought me. I am his. He is mine, and he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He set me free from all the power of the devil. This is awesome, isn't it? Is it? Well, it depends. What does it mean that he has fully paid for all my sins? What are those sins? How bad were they? And he, he set me free from all the power of the devil. Well, what does that mean? What is the power of the devil? You know, I might say, see that doctor over there? Wow, I was in such a terrible state of health, and I was in such pain, and that doctor cured me. And you would say, Wow. What did he do? Well, I, I had a broken fingernail, and he, he, had a, he happened to have a pair of nail clippers with him, so he, he fixed that, and he gave me a Tylenol for the pain. Well, wait a minute. Suddenly, it's not as impressive anymore once I, I find out that the problem was such, not such a big deal. And so you remember from previous sermons that I've, trying to, I've been trying to work with a, an, an analogy of a a glorious palace, a a mansion or a palace fit for a king, and the question is, what has the Savior done to fix things? If all we have in this glorious mansion, this royal residence, if all we have is a broken window, and then the Savior comes and fixes the window so that the cold of the winter can't come into the palace anymore— Well, that's very nice, but it's not such a big deal, is it? And so we spend time as Christians, and and the, the church helps us with the catechism, we spend time thinking about the problem, because the more we understand the problem, the more we can praise the Lord, we can love the Lord, and we can worship the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done to fix the problem. The greater the problem, the greater the Savior. That's why it's worth doing what we do every year. Now, you notice it's just a few Lord's Days where you don't want to stay stuck in the mud of sins and misery and feel miserable for the entire year. So we we treat it briefly, but we deal with it every year because it's worth dealing with. It helps us to worship Christ more, to worship Christ better. And so last time we saw that if we have that royal palace that residence fit for a king which represents human nature, and it's in glorious ruins. You can tell that it used to be something impressive, but it's just totally falling apart, and every kind of evil inhabitant lurking in the dark corners. It is no longer a residence fit for a king. It is no longer a place where the king can feast and banquet and invite the neighbors over to have fellowship with them. It is a dangerous and offensive place to the king and to the community. Well, that's where we ended up last time, as we came to the end of of Lord's Day 2. By nature, I hate God, and I hate my neighbor. Well, how did we get here? What happened? That's the question of Lord's Day 3. What brought this about? And as we go through Lord's Days 3 and 4, the sinner casts around to blame everything and everyone else except himself. And that's exactly what sinners do. That's what every addict does, including addicts to sin. Those who are under the power of sin, those who are under the power of any addiction, they keep saying, well, I can stop anytime I want. I can free myself. I can fix things. But the sin addict remains under the power of sin and cannot fix anything. It's not for want of trying, and you can see that in questions 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, that the, the, the sin addict is trying every which way to deceive himself into, into thinking that really this is not my fault. It's someone else's fault. And so as we go through these questions and answers, 6 through to 11, the church uses the teaching of Scripture to drive us along this path of self-deception until we realize that lying to ourselves brings us to a dead end. We have no way out. In the end, we're forced to confront the enormity of who we are as fallen sinners, the enormity of our sinful state, and the enormity of what our sin deserves. It deserves eternal judgment. And it's important that we spend time thinking this through. The church does this so that we can understand our need for Christ. And that we can glorify and praise Christ when we say with understanding that he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. We need to understand what that means. What are those sins? How bad were they? How badly did did they need to be paid for? And how bad was the power of the devil? What did it take to liberate me from that power? And so we'll go through these questions and answers, and we'll we'll trace the attempt of the sinner to blame everyone but himself, the attempt of the sinner to to self-deceive. And the first attempt, if you have your catechism open, it's question answer six. Isn't it God's fault? Okay, here we are. The place is a mess. Well, who made it like this? Isn't it the king's fault? Well, all you have to do is crack open your Bible to the first few pages, and you know that's not true. You read the account of the creation, and over and over again, the Lord says that he made something, and then he saw that it was very good. It was good. And then at the end of the chapter, at the end of the creation accounts, he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So over and over and over, God tells us, that the creation was made good and perfect. Then, what about us as, as humans, as human beings? Well, Genesis 1:26, 27 says that God made man, male and female, in the image of God. He made them. He made them in the image of God. He made them to reflect His own character. And what does it mean that we were made in the image of God? Well, we can tell what it looked like at first when we see what it looks like when he rebuilds it. And so if you turn to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 for instance, and here the apostle Paul is talking about what the image of God looks like when God fixes it, when God repairs it, when God restores it in human beings. And this is how he explains it Ephesians 4:24, it's the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what the image of God looks like, a, a truly righteous and holy person. And then you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18, where the apostle Paul is is again speaking about what the Spirit of God is doing when he's renewing the image of God in the believer. And Paul describes it as this restoration, this renovation, this renewal project and process where the Spirit is working to transform us from glory to glory after the image of Christ. And so how were we built? How were we created to be? We were created to be men and women, boys and girls who reflect the very character of God, truly righteous, truly holy, people that are like Christ himself. That's how we were made. We were made to be a perfect royal temple or palace of the great King. And, and the law, you remember that we, I used the example that the law is kind of like the blueprint. The law tells us what things should look like, how this palace should be built. The perfect Christ, the perfect man, has a perfect love for God and a perfect love for the neighbor. Those are the specifications for how we were built to be. And the palace was built to spec, You can't blame the builder. The builder built it exactly the way it was supposed to be built. The builder made human nature, he created human nature to be perfect, righteous, and holy to be the very reflection of the character of God. And so with our analogy, there's no question that the palace was built perfectly according to the blueprint. So we can't Blame the builder. And, you know, a lot of people do that. You, you, you talk to Christians, you talk to non-Christians. And, well, when people do, when Christians do things wrong, sometimes they blame the devil. The devil made me do it. Or they'll say, well, God made me this way. What am I supposed to do about it? I just have this, this tendency to fall into this sin. I'm an angry person. Why do you keep bothering me about that? God made me this way. It's the way I am. What they're saying is, God is the author of sin. God is at fault because of my sinful choices and my sinful nature from which my sinful choices come. And the Catechism from the Scripture says that's not the case. You can't blame God for the fall and the ruin of man and for the sinfulness of human nature. So we go on to question answer seven and say, well, okay, so if... It's not God's fault. Whose fault is it? Where did it come from? What happened? And there are all kinds of scriptures which explain that, of course. You just have to crack your Bible open to Genesis chapter 3. But let's go to James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 for a moment. James 1, 14 and 15. And here, this is basically a summary of the fall here. James 1, 14 15. But i want to start at 13, actually. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. That's question answer six. God isn't the one that's making us sin. But now look at verse 14 of James 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We all know this from the Scripture. We know this from the Catechism. And we know this from our life. Isn't that true? Every one of us has seen that bitter truth work itself out in smaller or bigger ways in our own lives. That's how sin works. So that's James chapter one. Then you have Romans chapter five, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, not through the creator, through a man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That's the teaching of Scripture. That's the recorded history of the human race and of the world. And because of that fall, because of the the fall into sin of our first parents, we're all conceived and born in sin. You think of Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And David is not saying that sexual intimacy between a a husband and wife is sinful, what he's saying is that from the very moment that he began to exist, his conception, from the very moment that he came into the world outside of the mother's womb, his birth, he was a sinner. That's who he is, and that's why he sins. And so if we, we go with our analogy, because sometimes it's hard, isn't it? You, 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 I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this. I have. You say, well, Adam and Eve, they, they, they didn't listen to God, they fell. Okay, that's bad, and, and, and that caused terrible consequences. But I wasn't there. That wasn't my choice. So why, why do I have to suffer the consequences? That's a tough one, if you think about it. That's a tough one. We think, well, is that really fair, Lord? Because I, I wasn't there. I didn't make that choice. But, it, but perhaps the analogy will help somewhat. Because that that ruined palace, it represents human nature in my analogy. And generation after generation of steward, the steward can represent perhaps the, the individual human beings from generation to generation. But generation after generation will inherit and inhabit that same broken, ruined, fallen palace. And generation after generation, that entire family line Inherits not just that ruined palace, but also the guilt and the offense that caused it to be ruined in the first place. So we have to to understand original sin, that it's not just something that happened a long time ago, but it's something that has effects and consequences in our lives today. Like produces like. That's just a fact of, of, of the way the world works. A fish will produce a fish, a dog will produce a dog. A sinner will produce a sinner. And so, that is how we are born into this world, as sinners. Human nature has become corrupt and ruined by sin, and every one of us inherits that corruption. Well, then question answer eight says, well, that doesn't sound good, but is it that bad? Is it, is it really that bad? Maybe it's a little bit bad, but we can still do some good things. And, and the answer of the catechism to this question, are we so corrupt that we're totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Really? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, because that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible uh, teaches us that in, in many places. In our our analogy, the answer is pretty clear, because the residence of the king is falling apart. It's a place which is not a place of joy and fellowship, hospitality, and feasting with the neighbors. It's, It's a ruin. Now, is it totally razed to the ground with no function as a house anymore, no place to maybe hide from the rain? No, there are still some things standing. It still some, has some houseness to it, but every aspect of this building is profoundly affected by the ruin, and that's really the point. Every aspect is profoundly affected by the ruin, and, and Scripture teaches us that very clearly. Go with me, please, to Genesis 6-5. We'll just go through a few verses very quickly here. 6-5, and I have been here before with you this is before the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention, not some, every, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Not a little bit evil, but only evil. Continually, not sometimes, continually. This is the Holy Spirit of God telling us who we are by nature. It's not a pleasant pro- uh, diagnosis. It's a very unpleasant thing. This is who we are. This is the wickedness of man this is fallen man then go to genesis 8:21 and we see something rather striking here in 8:21 because the the flood just happened god washed the world clean he scrubbed it with water in this incredible catastrophe which which changed the, almost everything on the planet It was a massive, massive catastrophe, and eight people survived, Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives, and you would think, okay, well, now things are good because the good people survived, so now God will say, well, I've got the good people, and let's start again. That's not what God says. Look at verse 21 of chapter 8, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth not something he learns it's just something he's born with since he's a kid that's the way he is he desires evil god is certainly not saying that the flood changed human nature back to the way it was supposed to be by its creation so there's a problem then you go to job 14 verse 4 go to job 14 verse 4 and job says who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean there is not one you can't expect a holy, righteous, and true human being created after the image of God in all holiness to come out of a mother and father who are not holy, who are not righteous. That doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. And then, of course, Romans chapter 3. We, we read Romans 3 before the sermon, and you see how emphatic the apostle is about human nature, apart from the regenerating work of the Lord Jesus Christ when he hasn't done the renovation yet. This is the picture of that palace which is in ruins. There is none that is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And sometimes I have used this as I've been bringing the gospel to unbelievers and they're telling me, well, I'm actually a good person. And I think that when if, if God does exist and he comes back to judge the living and the dead, I, I'm i just going to tell him I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good person. I've never robbed a bank. I've never murdered anyone. I've been faithful to my wife. And I don't see what the problem is. Why do I need a savior if, I, if I'm not a sinner? And then I will often go to Romans chapter three and I will use their name. Let's say I'm talking to to, to, to Bob, and I'll say, None is righteous, no, not one, except Bob. No one understands except Bob, and so on and so on. And they usually get the point after a few verses reading it that way. So the Bible makes it clear no one is righteous. We are all totally unable to do any good which pleases God. It doesn't mean to say that an unbeliever who hates God even cannot be kind to his wife or to his children and feed his children. It doesn't mean that. It just means that every aspect of their life and their being, their nature, is twisted from its original purpose. The original purpose is to live for the glory of God, to worship God, and to serve him according to his commands. And they're not doing that. And so they're unfit for uh, the purpose for which they were supposed to be created. So then we go to question answer nine. This is Lord's Day four now on page 520. And here comes the sin addict. He's casting around to blame everybody except himself. And he says, well, that's not fair. That is not fair. God's got this standard way up here and we're just human beings. I'm only human. I'm a flesh and blood. I, 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 can't, I am not perfect. So why are you demanding this inhumanly high bar that I have to meet. It's not right. It's not fair. And you know, at first glance, that seems, like a reasonable, that seems like a reasonable complaint. Why is God doing this? Why does God expect us to be perfectly loving to him and to our neighbor, perfectly holy and righteous, when he knows that that's not who human beings are? And it is true. We can't be perfect. We can't keep the law but it's fair for God to expect us to. And the reason is, is because he made us so that we could keep the law. And to to go to our analogy, you've just spent, I don't know how much a house costs nowadays. You've spent a lot of money on getting a house built, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And and it's all built according to the specs, and it's all ready to move into. And and the day before they were going to give it to you, you've paid the money Uh, one of the watchmen for the the builder's company, they get some friends over for a drug-fueled party and they end up burning the place down and it rained that night after the party or that morning and it's a sodden, ruined, burnt mess. And there are a few unconscious drunks still in one of the basement rooms. And you say to the builder, I was supposed to move in today and I would really like to have moved into the house that I've paid for. And I paid you to give me a house which has a roof and which isn't burnt and which isn't full of rainwater and unconscious drunks. Like, you didn't give me what I've paid you to do. And imagine the builder saying, well, that's unfair. How can you expect me to deliver a house like that when, when, when it's obviously not able to meet your expectations? You are being so unreasonable. And you're going to say, I'm sorry, Bill, that you're being unreasonable. I gave you all the money. You had all the things you needed to deliver the project, and you messed up, and you delivered me something which is inferior and which is not acceptable. Now, either that works for you or it doesn't. The point is this, is that God makes it very clear, and we we go back to the first chapter of Genesis in the beginning of the second chapter. He saw the things he had made. They were good. They were good. They were good. Seven times they were good. He saw everything he had made. It was very good. Romans 5.12, what happened to that goodness? Well, sin and death came into the world through man. So God did good. God made things good. Man destroyed. Man brought in sin. Man brought in death. Man brought in destruction. Man twisted the very very core of reality, the, 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 the creation. He twisted it into a place of fallenness and brokenness. And God has every right to demand that we be who he created us to be. He has no, there's, no, there's no reasonable expectation that he should lower his expectations because we have destroyed human nature. That's not the way out of this. So then question 10 will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? And the answer is no. There is righteous anger, and there is just judgment. And think about that. If Going back to that house that was destroyed, would you say, well, you know, things happen, and I'm just out $600,000, $700,000 but, you know, my custom-built home is, is in ruins, and it's full of, you know, suit and, and, and rot and, and sewage and, and criminals. And, but I'm a nice person. I'll, I'll just pretend it didn't happen. I'll, I'll just accept that. I'll look the other way, and, and maybe I'll just move in. I'll move in with those people and in those conditions and just show how I'm a very nice, loving, kind person. I'll just move in there with my family, with my little children, and I'll make the best of things. There's no way you're going to do that. No matter how kind you are, no matter how nice you are, you're going to expect justice. And you're going to want the law to evict the inhabitants, the evil inhabitants. You're going to want the builder to raise the thing to the ground, this disgusting, foul heap of ruins. Its existence is an offense to you. It's not what you wanted or what you ordered. And that's certainly the way that God... Looks upon the ruin of human nature. It was supposed to reflect his character, and it doesn't. And so it's very, the, the very existence of fallen human nature is a, an offense against the character of God. And, and here, our metaphor, as all metaphors do, breaks down because our, we can't stretch our metaphor into uh, something which describes a relationship. Obviously, A ruined palace is just bricks and things. But we're talking about ruined people and ruined relationships here. A ruined family. A ruined covenant. A betrayal of trust. A betrayal of intimate love. We're talking about the destruction of human nature. We have brought ruin upon what ought to be the very picture and reflection of the character of God. We've destroyed it by our sin. And that brings shame upon God. And that means that every act of sin by a human being, we're actually saying this as we sin. This is what God is like. Because God built us, he created us to reflect his character. That's our job. And so every sin we commit, we're saying to the world, this is what God is like. This is who God is. When we lie, when we cheat, when we betray, when we lose our temper, when we abuse others, when we exploit others, when we mistreat others, when we oppress others, when we hurt others, when we rob other people of the things or the honor or the respect or the care that is owed to them, whatever sin we do, and we do a lot of sins, every time we sin, we are saying, this is who God is. This is what God is like. And that's why the worst part about sin is that every sin is blasphemy. And when we start meditating on that and thinking about that, we realize that we have a very small and cramped view of God. It's very twisted and lopsided. We, We love to think about Jesus who loves us and, and God who is so good and, and who is with us and helps us through hard things and, and he gives us joy and family and friendship and food and drink. We love talking about that stuff and it's good stuff. But we don't like thinking about God in his righteous and holy anger in his righteous and holy judgment. We don't like to think about the fact that fallen human nature and the sins that we commit are offenses against the most high majesty of God. We don't like to think about that because it's unpleasant. Well, think about what Nahum writes in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Because the scripture doesn't doesn't kind of beat around the bush. It it, it gets right to the point here. Over and over and over, the scripture makes it clear how God reacts to sin. Nahum chapter one, verse two, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The, The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And then look at verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. You know, we like to think of Jesus as sweet and kind, and and he's knocking on the door of your heart and saying, oh, I really just would love to invite you to be my child, and I, I hope you invite me in to your life, and we, we like to present Jesus as very inoffensive and safe. But when we read Nahum about who God is, we know who Jesus is. Jesus is God of God, very God of very God. And you look at the book of Revelation, and there is Jesus with a sword, a two edged sword coming out of his mouth, and he goes forth to conquer and to trample underfoot his enemies, to destroy to shed blood. There's a massive battle going on. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is sweet and kind and loving, is also a warrior king who destroys his enemies and will destroy sin and sinners from off the earth. That's who God is. That's who Jesus is. And because it's quite uncomfortable to think about, We don't often talk about it, but we need to because the Bible does. Go to Psalm 5, verse 4 for a moment. Psalm 5, verse 4, and we we see what the psalmist says about God's character. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. You know, nowadays people like to go out and evangelize and they come up to people and they say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And they say that to people who are living in sin. And they, when they say that, they speak against the teaching of scripture. You know, what the sinner needs to hear is not that God loves them as they are in their sin because he doesn't. They need to hear about God's judgment. They need to hear that God is a God who is righteous, that God is a God who abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful, that God destroys the liar. That's all of us. That's all of us. And we need to know that, that that's what God does so that we figure out what the problem is, so that we can figure out what the right solution is. Now go to Psalm 7, verse 11. Psalm 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge. A, A God who feels indignation every day. The God of pseudo-Christianity of the 21st century, the God of uh, 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 modern moral therapeutic deism is the God who is up there in the sky like Santa Claus and with a wink and a nod, he sees you sinning. He's like, well, no one's perfect, but just try again. That's not the God of the scripture. That's not the true God of the universe. He is a righteous judge. He feels indignation every day. Now look at verse 12. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his his arrows fiery shafts. If you are living in sin, and you're okay with living in sin, And you keep living in sin, then know this that God is hunting you down to destroy you. That's what the scripture says. That's the character of God. He does not put up with sin or evil. He will not allow disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished. He's gonna take that ruin and he's gonna do something about it, something radical. He's not going to leave it the way it is. He's not going to look the other way. And then question answer 11. Isn't God also merciful? All this talk about judgment. All this talk about anger and wrath and holiness. Isn't God merciful? And he is, isn't he? God is indeed very merciful. And that's hopeful for us. But you know when somebody has committed a great crime, you can be nice and you can be merciful, but being nice and merciful is not something which is in opposition to seeking justice. You can have a heart inclined to forgive and to show mercy, and that is not mutually exclusive with a heart that desires that justice be done. Justice and mercy in the Scripture And in the world that God has made and in the character of God himself, justice and mercy go together. They're not against each other. And the law of the universe is that every wrong is a debt and every debt must be paid, period. Every debt will be paid. Someone has to pay it. Someone has to pay for the restoration project to change this condemned ruin of human nature back to the way it was supposed to be someone has to fix it this is sobering this is this is where we end up at the end of our text of this afternoon someone's going to pay there will be hell to pay that's what the bible teaches that's what we confess and this, this is very sobering. It's important that we are sobered by it, rather than sisters. Our sins are not just a minor blip on the radar of the history of the universe. Our sins are a massive problem. And our sins drive us towards eternal judgment. There is no escape. There is no recourse. There's no way out. There's no way of fixing things. You know, in this analogy of this ruined palace, you are the steward. Your human nature is the house, the palace. You don't have the power to fix things. You can't expel those enemies. You're not strong enough. They've taken over. They're, you're in their power. You're in the power of your sinful nature and the devil as a, as a human being by nature. You don't have the funds and the resources to repair the ruins. We, don't, we, we, we can't do that. We, we don't have enough money. Only the king would have enough money. And so there's judgment upon you and all of your fathers and your children in the generations. We've taken the royal residence of the King of Kings. We've turned it into a foul den of thieves and murderers, a condemned ruin. And it must be made right and justice must be done. And all that we can expect, all that we deserve is punishment. Punishment which fits the crime. The steward sent to prison for high treason. The house, the ruin, raised to the ground and destroyed forever. Everlasting hell. That's where sin brings us. And everlasting hell is knowing God only in his righteous anger forever. And so that's the teaching of Scripture, that's the confession of the church with respect to our sin and it's it's unpleasant but it's good to know this is the diagnosis and if you know it you won't waste your time trying to fix your problems because you can't you won't waste your time trying to get your life together to be a better person because you can't you won't waste your time trying to improve yourself to make yourself more acceptable to God because you can't you see when we know the problem we look for the right answer and when we understand the problem, then we know that the only answer that we can have and search for is the Savior. We need a Savior. We need the Savior. We need the Savior. That's where knowing our sin drives us to, to look for a Savior. Only when you really understand the problem will you look for the proper solution, only when you really understand your total lostness in sin, that you're dead in sin, will you understand what kind of a savior you need, and so this is sobering stuff, but it's good stuff, and I I think that perhaps as reformed people, we don't spend enough time meditating in general, but especially meditating on sin, it's good to do. We're called to do it when we examine ourselves for the Lord's Supper. I, I wonder if we do. Perhaps we come to church and, oh, it's the Lord's Supper today. Oh, yes, I remember reading it in the bulletin last week. But it's good. You know, we're modern people. We rush around, and we've got lots of things to post on social media, so we don't have a lot of time sometimes for the important things. But it's good to stop, and it's good to meditate on your sin. To think about your unworthiness, to just look at yourself in the mirror of God's law and say, Well, who am I? And how good am I, really? And in myself, of myself, apart from the Lord Jesus, how acceptable am I to God? It's good to think about that. It's good to meditate about that. Because when you look into the depth, when you look into that abyss of your fallen nature, and I'm preaching to myself, brothers and sisters, There's a sinner on the pulpit here, too. But when we do that, it frightens us, who we are by nature. And it drives us to the Lord Jesus. You see, the darker your sin, the more the glory of Christ will shine in his grace and in his forgiving and restoring love. So it's good to think about. Now, Lord's Day 4 ends, and Lord's Day 3 ends in ways that are connected. The end of Lord's Day 4 is there's hell to pay, there's eternal punishment. The end of Lord's Day 3, we can't do anything good unless, and here's the gospel, in the middle of this whole section on misery and sin, here's the gospel, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Something can change this. Something can pull us out of this dark abyss. It is the sovereign action of a merciful, gracious, and forgiving God, a God who has such power that he can come into our lives and change everything. Unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God, when you are regenerated, the Spirit of God changes you from being a condemned ruin into being a glorious, restored, renovated temple of the living God. We need the work of the Spirit to give us new hearts. And so as you, as you meditate on sin, you look at your life, you look at your heart, does it bear the marks of the ravages and the ruin of sin? Well, it certainly does if you're looking with the eyes of faith. Is everything perfect? No. No. Can you improve yourself? Can you fix yourself? No. The gospel today comes to us and reminds us that your only comfort in life and death is that body and soul, you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, and he does something to you. He causes you to be born again through the living and abiding word of God. He gives you new birth, new life. He gives you regeneration by his Holy Spirit. He gives you another heart. The wages of sin is death, and sin brings just, terrible, certain judgment. And all we can do by nature in our own power, all we can do is sin, and sin, and sin some more. And all we can expect as sinners is the terror of judgment Unless God acts. Unless we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And so brothers and sisters, you know, so often we reduce Christianity and the faith to a weak and a pale imitation of what it's supposed to be. So often we reduce Christianity and the Christian faith to be a better person. Try harder not to do those sins. Do them a little less often. Do them a little less deeply. Just, just go a little lighter on those sins and try to work yourself into being a better person. That is not the gospel. The gospel teaches us not self-improvement, not trying harder, not trying to be good and a, a better person, but the gospel teaches us to cry out with the psalmist, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. God, I'm doing things wrong. I don't want to just stop doing the things wrong. I do want to do that, but not just that. But I want you to rip out of my heart the desire to do wrong in the first place. You see, so often we're dissatisfied with, well, I'm not doing that sin anymore, but in our hearts would love to. Well, that doesn't change anything. We need to ask God, change me, transform me, renew me, give me new desires, make me like Christ. And that's exactly what God is doing, isn't he? That's what he's doing in all who are united to Christ by faith, all who belong body and soul and life and death to Christ by sovereign grace. That's why we say there at the end of the first question and answer. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. And he makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen.